Hello and welcome to episode 335 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we head into the world of serial killers, where we hear about a brutally violent man who killed with ease. A huge thank you to Matrix Senior for the research and writing of this week's episode. Today's story is brought to you by Canva. Creating visual content is an essential part of my podcast, but the creative process hasn't always been very easy for me, and some of my earlier attempts at design were amateur to say the very least. Then I found Canva for Teams, which made it easy to collaborate and design with others, which frankly makes the whole process so much more creative and fun, and with much better results. I will talk about other features in the weeks ahead, but for me, the endless templates are amazing. It means I can design anything with incredible results. And if you do have to do a lot of presentations, this is your chance to make them super professional. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash truecrime. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash truecrime for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash truecrime. Now, have you listened to the Troubles podcast yet? What do you mean no? Let me point you to another excellent episode from O'Sheen earlier this year. In The Three Funerals of Frank Stagg, he tells us how Frank Stagg was a Republican prisoner from Ireland who died on hunger strike in 1976. In this episode, we learn about what happened afterwards as the Irish government went to significant lengths to prevent his funeral from becoming a rallying cry to the Republican movement. Take a listen to the Troubles podcast right now. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest, The Month and Year Game. At number one in the UK charts was Adam Ant with Goody Two Shoes. In the US top spots were Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder with Ebony and Ivory, and the top-selling single in Australia this year was Survivor and Eye of the Tiger. Does anybody not know that song? In the news this month, E.T. was released. I bet you still can't stop the tears at that point in the film, can you? The body of Roberto Calvi, also known as God's Banker, was found hanging below Blackfriars Bridge on the River Thames, The Falklands War ended after 74 days with the most appalling loss of life on both sides of the conflict. About 650 Argentinian people died, while Britain lost 255. Like all war, so much devastation was faced by families. I'm always drawn to that quote from Hoover. Older men declare war, but it is youth that must fight and die. Elsewhere this month, the 20p coin came into circulation and porn star John Holmes was acquitted on murder charges. And finally, Prince Charles and Diana, Princess of Wales, named their baby William. So did you guess the year? It was June 1982. Of course it was. The Washburn Valley is part of the Yorkshire Dales in the northeast of England an amazingly beautiful area of lakes and woodland in the area of Nidderdale. It's about 15 miles northwest of the centre of world football, Leeds. The area is popular with outdoor pursuits such as canoeing and walking, 
but the amazing wildlife found there, somewhat depressingly, also makes it a haven for poachers. So when Police Constable David Haig was asked to deliver a police summons to a poacher, it was quite a routine procedure for a police officer covering such a rural area. But when the officer failed to return and couldn't be contacted, his colleague PC Mick Clipston was sent out to find the missing officer. As he approached a tree-lined picnic area known as Norwood Edge, he came upon a police car in a clearing at the side of the road which was stationary with its doors open. As he got closer and parked up, he could see that somebody was laid next to the car. And to his shock and great distress, it was the dead body of his colleague with a single bullet wound in the middle of his forehead. Why would someone kill a police officer over such a minor transgression as a police summons? Detectives investigating the scene found the officer's clipboard underneath his body. On it was a car registration number, a name and a date of birth. Clive Jones was the name, 18th of the 1044, at Leeds with no fixed abode, and the vehicle was KYF326P. Had Constable Hayes recorded the clues on his clipboard that would enable detectives to capture his killer? Having cleared the poacher involvement in the original incident, and also another Leeds man called Clive Jones of involvement in the murder, police launched a major investigation, which was to be led by North Yorkshire Police's Assistant Chief Constable, David Burke. The name that had been given was false, but the car was easily traceable. It was a green Citroen. It was found 25 miles away near Ledsham, abandoned in a field. The car revealed no fingerprints, marks or anything else that would have been of evidential value and inquiries revealed it had recently been bought for cash in London by a purchaser who had used a false name. The police inquiry continued. The day after the car was found in Torxey, Lincolnshire, about 75 miles southeast of Leeds, an armed man broke into a secluded house occupied by an older lady, Frida Jackson. After stealing the few pounds that she had, he took some food, apologised for his actions and left, leaving her terrified but unharmed. This man wore a blue balaclava and Frida did not see his face. At the time, detectives had no idea that this was connected to the death of PC Haig. Then just before dawn on the 23rd of June, approximately 20 miles away in Girton, Nottinghamshire, a married couple were both home when the man broke into their house. He tied the frightened couple up, but while he was still in the house, they managed to free themselves and tried to escape, threatening the intruder with George's rifle. It was to prove a deadly mistake. Before George had time to react, the intruder had shot both of them in the head. He left the building, taking what he had arrived for, their Rover 2600 car. George was killed instantly. But remarkably, Sylvia was still alive and in a feat of endurance and bravery, she managed to crawl to the house next door to raise the alarm. This being a rural setting, it was some distance away and it took her all night. The neighbour there spoke about her shock when Sylvia arrived at her door with nothing on her feet, wet through and covered in blood. She looked horrific. 
although I've never met the person that has done this terrible thing, you could feel him all around you. I walked out of the back door and I could just feel his presence. It terrified me for a long time. She would not be unique in making this chilling and unusual observation about the killer. Sylvia survived, but she received brain damage and never fully recovered from the incident and remembered very little about the events of that evening. When North Yorkshire police heard about this incident and also the robbery at Torxey, they believed that the same man was responsible and the incident rooms at Nottinghamshire Police and Lincolnshire Police were connected to the North Yorkshire computer, which allowed the three forces to collaborate and share information. And now police knew the car the man they were hunting was driving, the Brown Rover 2600. The police then had a break, or so they thought, when the car was spotted parked up by PC Ken Oliver, a police dog handler. He approached the vehicle carefully and asked the driver to get out of the car. There was no response, with the driver just staring straight forward. The officer then said more forcibly, I don't tell anybody twice, get out of the car now. As he looked inside the car, he could see the driver bringing up a gun and fired with the bullet catching him across the bridge of the nose, leaving a groove. On hearing this noise, his German Shepherd police dog jumped out of the van and went for the attacker as he got out of the car ready to shoot again. This gave the PC time to run to the safety of a nearby house in a hail of bullets. Seven hit him, but luckily none were fatal. The dog was also hit twice, but you'd be pleased to hear, luckily survived the attack. Although he recovered physically, this ordeal naturally took its toll on PC Oliver, who left his job unable to continue, and it said he took to drinking heavily, citing that it was the only way he could sleep at night. He said later that the whole event was like living a nightmare. He ruined my life totally. Meanwhile, the gunman made off into the forest in the stolen rover, but abandoned it nearby, burning it out. He was now on foot and not too far away. The first detective on the scene was Sergeant Jim Kilmartin, who was accompanied by a forest ranger. They headed into the woods, closely followed by a team of armed police dog handlers. Jim was of the belief he was on the trail of an IRA terrorist who had come over to kill as many police officers as possible. Now, although the killer was only just ahead of them in the woods, they still had no idea who he was. The forest ranger commented on how he seemed to be able to move at speed through the forest without noise and without disturbing vegetation. A real pro. And Sergeant Kilmartin would later say, you could have trodden on this man and that would be the first you've known about him. That and when he shot you. This was his natural environment. We were the strangers here. From dawn the next day, a huge search was mounted. Marksmen with sniper rifles were positioned on the perimeter roads and over 1,000 police were brought in to comb the area and a helicopter chattered overhead. They found nothing. And the question on everyone's mind was, who exactly is this man? What is his motivation? And how has he managed to slip through our grasp? The answer lay 50 miles away. PC Martin Hatton was working late in the warrant office in Leeds, looking at the security bulletin 
that had been sent to all forces regarding the information that had been found on PC Hayes' clipboard. And he reasoned that people often use false names, but rarely false date of births as it can be so difficult to remember what date you gave if asked again to repeat it. So what's easier to remember than the truth? Given that the place of birth was Leeds, it was possible the man they were seeking was still local. So he decided to go through the card system in the warrant office and look for anyone on record that had the date of birth on the clipboard 18th of the 10th, 1944. The only issue was there were up to 5,000 individuals to check. Diligently, he worked his way through and eventually found out Barry Edwards, who was wanted for an offence of wounding. Suspicious that this could be the man they were looking for, he spoke to other officers and they were sent to check the address. On arrival, it was quickly found it was unoccupied, but personal effects were still in the property, and a quick search showed Edward's real name was Barry Prudham. The 37-year-old was a keep-fit fanatic who was obsessed with the military and weapons. Surely, this had to be their man. But within the police force, the only man that could say for sure it was him was PC Ken Oliver, who was still in shock and in a safe house, he was convinced that his attacker was looking for him as he was the only witness. Ken was shown the mugshot of Barry Prudham to see if he could give a positive identification and he was in no doubt at all, saying that the eyes gave it away. At last, the investigators now knew who they were looking for. Okay, let's pause here for something a little different and a little exciting. Up here in the Scottish Highlands, I've discovered a nearby distillery making some of the most sublime gin I've ever tasted. What's more, the couple who run Percy Distillery, Chrissy and Simon, donate something from every bottle they sell to the charity Pads, which supports rescue dogs, just like my Buckley and Dizzy Rascal, something dear to my heart. So we've teamed up and created a fantastic new gin just for you. UK True Crime Bloodhound Gin is a premium gin exclusively made available to UK TC listeners. With grassy notes and hints of floral and cinnamon, it's delicious by an open fire listening to your favourite podcast or chilled on a summer's day in the garden, drinking responsibly of course. We will officially launch it in two weeks on May the 2nd, but we need your help in choosing the best design for the label. Just head to my Instagram stories at UK True Crime and vote for your choice. Which one would you like to see on your shelf? You can also follow me on Instagram and find out more about the gin and how it's created. And if you'd like to pre-order this first batch of this exclusive UK true crime bloodhound gin, named after that hero of canine crime solvers, head over to percydistillery.com slash UKTC to pre-order for UK delivery during official launch week. And remember, you get 10% off using the code UKTC at checkout. UK adults only. All the details are in the socials and show notes. Now, back to the show. Prudent was the son of Kathleen, a Leeds dressmaker, and Peter, a soldier serving within the British Army. Peter played no part in Prudent's upbringing, and father and son never met. The family home was in Leeds, and he was involved with the police at an early stage when he was briefly sent to an approved school for housebreaking. After leaving school, Prudhomme began an apprenticeship and trained as an electrician. 
In October 1965, he married Gillian, and they had a boy and a girl. And Pruden's mum had a tragic end when she died in a drowning accident whilst on holiday in 1973. In 1969, Prudhomme enlisted as part of the Army's Territorial Reserve. The unit specialised in covert surveillance, reconnaissance and stay-behind operations, and Prudhomme was eventually rejected by the unit. Unusually, this wasn't due to a lack of fitness or aptitude. He passed these tests comfortably. He wasn't a good soldier, and he didn't like taking orders. Prudhomme pivoted, as they now say, and became a grocer, and he purchased a shop for his wife in Leeds. But by 1977, he was working in the petroleum industry in Saudi Arabia to earn more cash. While he was there, his wife left him for another man, and he received a pretty devastating Dear John letter. This had a major effect on him, and he went from being a very stable, hard-working man to morose and irritable. He was even more annoyed when he returned to England and found his wife had taken a massive £8,000 back then from his bank account. Between 77 and 82, Pruden was with a new girlfriend and the two travelled extensively as he took work on oil rigs in Canada and the US. In January 1982, while Pruden was in Wakefield in Yorkshire, he was arrested for a violent assault on a motorist with a tyre iron and this is when he started to use the alias of Barry Edwards. After failing to attend Leeds Crown Court to answer bail, a warrant was issued for his arrest. His girlfriend had now had enough, and she had left Prudhomme and moved out of their house in Leeds they'd shared. Prudhomme did not hold a licence to possess firearms, but he carried a pistol on him, which he had bought in the US and smuggled back into Britain. Okay, let's go back to the search of Prudhomme's flat. One of the items found was Eddie McGee's No Need to Die manual, detailing special forces survival techniques. Well, Eddie, I guess, was like the Anthony Middleton of the time. And however popular this book was, this copy was different. It was personally addressed to Prudhomme and signed by Eddie himself. Eddie had run survival courses in Yorkshire, which Prudhomme had attended. If there was one person who could track him, here was that person. Eddie told police he knew Prudhomme quite well as he had attended several courses and Eddie had spoken to him at length. Eddie had taught him practically everything that he knew and provided he followed his training, he would have no issues living in the forest for weeks or even months. He revealed that Prudhomme had told him that both this and the SAS training he had done were in preparation for service in the American army. Now, this gave detectives a problem. Pruden was on the loose, they believed, in a forest, Dolby Forest, which provided 50 square miles of perfect cover. Eddie told police that Pruden had been taught an escape and evasion tactic called Tornado. This is where the person being pursued actually stays just in one area. This confuses the enemies, they'll be going out in all directions searching for them, kind of like, I guess, hidden in plain sight. On the 28th of June at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Police Sergeant David Winter, who was 31, and his colleague PC Mick Wood, received information about a suspicious man seen in the village of Old Moulton in North Yorkshire. 
PC Winter challenged a man who turned out to be Prudem. He produced his pistol and opened fire. And although David tried to take cover behind a low wall, Prudem followed him and shot the policeman three times, the final time from just inches away, killing him. After firing at journalists nearby who were covering the story, with the police in pursuit, Prudem made his way towards the edge of the village with a view to crossing the river. But the river was in full flow and fast moving, so he followed the path to a disused railway bridge. It was a dead end. Doubling back, using the trees as cover, he ran into a clearing behind Old Morton Tennis Club, where he disappeared once again. And for the next two days, over 600 officers, numerous police dogs and helicopters failed to locate him. Panic was, as you can imagine, rising in the local community and Chief Constable Ken Henshaw held a conference to try to quell that fear. But privately, he shared the sense of disbelief at events, saying, The murder of David Winter came as a shock to everybody. It brought home the danger that everyone in uniform was facing. This man shot to kill. The police were getting desperate and were fast running out of ideas. At this point, there was an event that changed the direction of the inquiry when a volunteer presented himself at a police station offering his services. Describing himself as a tracker and armed with a survival kit and a matchbox, the officer on duty thought that he was dealing with some eccentric member of the public and sent him on his way. When Henshaw got wind of this, he was a bit more open-minded and stated he wanted to see this man immediately. A helicopter was dispatched to collect him and the man, of course, was Eddie McGee. Eddie was soon in the team to help in the hunt and Chief Constable Henshaw said of this news, Now we have somebody looking for him with even more skill in the arts of evasion and survival than Barry Edwards has. I'm confident we are going to find him. The scene was set for a showdown between a special forces tracker and his pupil. On arrival in Moulton, McGee was surprised by just how little the police leading the inquiry knew about Prudhomme. Indeed, he said he knew more about him than the people who'd been trying to find him for the last 13 days. McGee was of the impression that some of the police thought it was some kind of idiot they were chasing. He explained to them that unless they approached the incident with the degree of expertise that Pruden was displaying, they weren't going to catch him. It was clear that Henshaw had stuck his neck out by involving McGee, a move opposed by many of his more conservative fellow senior officers. But the police seemed to have a spot of luck. Prudhomme had been spotted at a farm two miles away. Armed police descended on the area and a comprehensive search of the farm and outlying areas was carried out, with the farmer told to keep his shotguns loaded and use them if necessary. Police searched for three days and found nothing. Further sightings followed with the same results. McGee tried to explain that Prudhomme would not be moving far, he'd be following those tornado principles he'd been taught, but it appeared the police, desperate for a result, wouldn't listen, saying that if they didn't follow every lead, they would lose the public's confidence. It sounds about right, doesn't it? They were in an impossible situation. McGee also moaned that every time he arrived at a potential sighting, he was met by 70 armed police officers and journalists, 
making any type of tracking possible. McGee was holed up in a police cell and as he settled down for the night and thought about how to second-guess Prudhomme, he didn't know how right he'd been all along. Prudhomme was just 100 yards away from that very police station. For three days he'd been laid up in a hide behind Moulton Tennis Club as the search continued around him. On the fourth day, hunger forced Prudhomme to break cover and he approached a nearby house in search of food. Was the triple killer about to kill again? Elderly couple Morris and Bessie Johnson were at home. When Bessie went into the dining room, where she was confronted by Prudhomme, he said, you know who I am. Bessie was quite pragmatic and said she didn't. She later said he didn't look anything like the pictures on the TV. Like me, he looked far younger. And she thought it was a local youth playing a prank at first. A short time later, their son Brian, who was in his 30s, returned from the family allotment, through the back door, into the kitchen, to see Prudhomme staring at him from the dining table, pointing a pistol at him. Brian panicked and ran into the front room where his parents were. Prudhomme followed him into the room and calmly said, You did right running in here. If you'd attempted to run out of the back door, I'd have put a bullet to the back of your head. Prudhomme tied the three of them up and laid them on the floor. Morris complained of being uncomfortable, so Prudhomme sat him in a chair. He eventually sat all of them up and as the mood relaxed, he partially untied them, leaving the room several times to use the toilet. He left his gun behind at one point and the family all looked at each other, but wisely thought better of trying to grab it. They then realised that Prudhomme was literally just outside the door and had been watching them. It was a test almost. After this, the mood relaxed further and there was quite a bizarre situation of the four of them chatting, Brian later liking it as if they'd known each other for years. Prudhomme called Brian by his name and even referred to Morris as dad as they all watched the evening news together. Prudhomme joked that Eddie McGee couldn't track him, but he could track Eddie McGee. Morris pleaded with him several times, Give yourself up, Barry. But Prudhomme replied that if he let the police know where he was, a firearms team would storm the house and likely kill all of them. As the night went on, Prudhomme eventually decided to leave. However, not before he left Brian a gift. Taking a gold signet-type ring from his little finger, he gave it to Brian, explaining it was a US Army paratroopers ring and he wanted Brian to have it and asked him to promise he would wear it, which Brian did. Bessie made him some sandwiches to take with him and as he left the house, he held up the sandwiches and said, this will be the last supper. He thanked the Johnsons and commented how it was nice to meet such lovely people and he disappeared into the darkness of the early morning. Brian later said he knew he was going to die. He knew he wasn't going anywhere. And two hours later, Morris reported the incident to the police. Armed officers descended on the village and police dogs searched for a scent, but again they were unable to track him. Chief Constable Henshaw said it was a total mystery how he continued to manage to do this. Eddie McGee eventually managed to convince senior police officers to let him track Prudhomme from the back of the Johnson's house. 
McGee picked up a trail in the early morning dew very quickly. Following the trail, he came to the perimeter wall of the tennis club and through the mist he could see the lean-to shelter against the wall. Eddie slowly approached it and on carefully looking inside, he saw Prudham laid on his back with his pistol in his hand, which was against his chest, and in his other hand was a machete. McGee followed orders and he moved away and told the police what he had seen. They'd finally tracked the man down, they'd got him. Officers approached and called for Prudham to give himself up, throw out his weapons and come out with his hands up. Silence. A perimeter containment force was set up to avoid members of the press or public stumbling into the area and local command was handed over to Chief Inspector David Clarkson, a firearms team commander from the West Yorkshire Force. He went forward alone, initially behind a shield and then used the tennis court perimeter wall as a cover. He later explained he'd not met or spoken with Eddie McGee, and before proceeding further he wanted to make sure this was the right person, and not a homeless person sleeping rough. He tried to move the hide away from the wall to look inside, but he couldn't get purchase on it. He then tried to talk with the occupant, but there was no response. Eventually, he leaned right over, at which point a shot went off, seemingly narrowly missing his head. At this point I realised it was Prudham, he said. No points for detective work there, Mr Clarkson. What was clear was he was lucky to be alive. He then gave the order to fire, presumably after he'd slid back down the other side of the wall. 17 shots were fired into the hide and Britain's most wanted criminal was dead. But even in death, Prudent managed to cheat the police. The post-mortem showed that the gunshot that went off narrowly missing Chief Inspector Clarkson was not aimed at him. It was Prudent shooting himself in the head. Police marksman had fired 17 times at his dead body. Barry Prudent was buried in an unmarked grave in Hare Hill Cemetery in Leeds. So what do you make of today's story? The question we are left with is just what started these attacks. It seems likely as his wife leaving him for another man, something that happens to many people every day of the week with clearly less severe consequences. But of course we will never know for certain. But what we can be certain about is that his actions left three people dead and their families and friends devastated by the actions of the brutal killer. And yes, with echoes of the Raoul Moat case, some people saw him as less than that as he gave the police the runaround for so long. But this is no hero. This so-called Phantom of the Forest was a man, a brutal killer, who thought nothing of murdering in cold blood at point-blank range. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. You can discuss all aspects of UK true crime on our Facebook group, where there are now 90,000 of us. And to support the show, please join my community at patreon.com slash UK true crime. And of course, this week, I've introduced you to the UK true crime Bloodhound Gin. All the links to UK true crime Bloodhound Gin are in the show notes. And you can follow the story on Instagram at UK true crime and on all my other social channels.
Remember to vote for your favourite label before 9pm on Thursday the 20th of April. And check out my first Instagram video with Chrissy at Percy Distillery, all about naming gin. Okay, so that is all for me for another week. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.